I think a lot of people, they have this romantic vision of adoption, you know, Linda, because Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt adopted all these kids. Oh, yeah. So it's going to work out for me, you know, yeah. but they also have a lot of problems with all due respect. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> like, and a lot, so, of, a lot of hope, a lot of hope. In the I was going to say that too. Yeah. And there's also a lot of nannies and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you really want to know what you're getting into and it's a beautiful thing. And I encourage everyone to adopt if you want to, that I'm not saying anything negative, but you need to know what you're going into. And especially in that case of if you have biological children and you're bringing an adopted child, possibly with some problems into the family, you, you just have to look at what you're doing. You just know what you're getting into. That's all. You know, when you just get into a conversation and all of a sudden, it's almost like everything else just evaporates. You're captivated and intrigued and feel really special. That's exactly what happened here. <laughs> My guest, Jay India, was suggested to me by many as someone that I would love to chat to. And those suggestions were spot on. We touched base briefly through a summit last year and there's a certain impact that the presence of Jay India had on me. I was literally beaming from ear to ear after this conversation and it's one that is right up there with something that will stick with me for a very long time. Once you listen, I think you'll understand, rather than trying to put more words to the words, <laughs> the conversation itself really just oozes with inspiration and motivation and genuine human decency. I'm Linda Bonney. This is Stories with a Sunday Roast. Jay India, welcome to the community. Thank you so much for joining us. I was highly encouraged to have a chat to you and I think I can see many of the reasons why. <laughs> After having a listen to many of your different podcasts and, oh, that's only the surface, I'm sure, as we know, with podcast land. <laughs> One story that has really stuck with me, though, is your recent Costco experience. <laughs> I did not think you're gonna go there. That was, I love that you started out with that, Linda. I love how you paused for effect, and I, yeah. I was like, "I'm yeah. riveted." Continue. <laughs> um, after living in Australia, you know that we don't have Costco over here, so it is yes. quite the novelty. But can you explain for those that may not have had the pleasure of listening to your podcast yet? Just. Oh, Describe what that experience was like, if you could touch on that, and what you learned essentially at the end of the day as well. Yes, and I'm honored to be here, Linda. So thank you so much. I'm, I, this is amazing for me. Thank you thank for you. sharing my stories. Yeah, so Costco. Uh, <laughs> I am not someone who ever shopped at Costco. I should explain what it is. It is a big superstore where you can buy everything in bulk. And it's not something that I normally would gravitate to, except they have really cheap gasoline. So <laughs> that sort of matters right now. <laughs> it matters right now. Exactly. So <laughs> they changed their policy to where anyone could get gasoline to now you have to be a Costco member. So I had to become a member. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, become a member, get the cheap gas. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to, you know, just be the housewife I am and go inside <laughs> and explore this whole store and, and see what's going on. Seriously, I'd been in one before, but never, you know, just as a member and for myself. And my mother had recently passed away. She had passed away in December 2021 of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And she'd been sick and she went quickly. She probably went within four months. And um, it was just a big surprise. She left behind my father, who was married to her for almost 55 years. So mm -hmm. for him, it's been navigating a completely different world. 
And uh, it's it's been rough in in some ways for him, and and he's also been doing a really good job, and I'm proud of him in other ways. So when I went into Costco, it was this incredible feeling because my mother loved Costco. So there's two places like this. Uh, there's three technically. It's Costco, and then you can go to Sam's Club, which Walmart owns, and then you can go to something called BJ's. So those are the three ones you can go to, the three superstores. My mom belonged to Costco and BJ's, and that was her thing. And you have to understand from her perspective, she was really sick and debilitated in a lot of ways. She had something mm. called an intestinal blockage. We found out through journals after she died that she was in pain for 20 years, not telling <sighs> anyone. It was really, yeah, it was really hard to hear. I have an inflammatory bowel disease, so I can really relate to it. Mm. Uh, my mom, unfortunately, it, she was sick then, but she just ate whatever she wanted, which you can't do for anything like an IBD or an intestinal blockage. So that fueled, you know, a lot of her pain. On top of it, she had cancer a few times and she was just sick with other things. And because of that, she loved going to Costco because, you know, you go in there and it was my first time in there and I was like, holy crap, you're treated like royalty. I know it sounds ridiculous, but like you go in there and like everyone wants to help you. Everyone says hi. You have to show your ID. The greeter's really nice. And then there's people at the end of the aisles. Now with COVID, they're starting to do it again at the end of the aisles uh, with food. You can have little samples. So they're giving you little samples. And then at the end wow. when you check, yeah, at the end when it's a whole experience. At the end when you check out, then you, you know, you do the self-checkout or at least I did, but the people come up to you and they check out everything for you. And they're so again, happy and positive. So I understood why my mom enjoyed this experience for the first time. And I used to judge it all the time. I would, cause I'm an absolute minimalist. So I never understood why you needed to amass all these things, <laughs> but I understood it's, it was the experience. And because I had that experience, I felt that she guided me in this because I'm a big metaphysical person and I felt mm. that she really guided me in this and she was showing me, this is what made me happy. This, I, I want you to understand that this gave me happiness in my life and I want you to understand my perspective finally and I was finally able to and that was such a gift. Mm. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's interesting because again, it's, Still seems like a bit of a novelty over here in Australia because you know, we go down to Woolies, mate, with our trolley, and you know you're you're, you're at Costco with your cart, which I never never quite understood. <laughs> um, and yeah, we do live in such a consumerist society, <laughs> which feeds us all sorts of information, not just in you know, physical goods, but <laughs> mind and all sorts of other crap that we are fed. So like you, I don't gravitate towards those experiences generally. I don't like shopping as a general mm. sort of rule. I feel like it really tires me out and everything like that. It's just, mm, it feels like such a powerful story to me because in some way you can't relate and then in other ways you can relate so much because, like you said, you got this connection even though your mum is no longer there to be able to essentially be there physically. It was such a spiritual moment at the same time. Yes. Mm. <laughs> and another thing that I think we are fed to believe in this consumerist type society is this idea that we shouldn't be living in the past and we shouldn't be holding on to things, but there is so many more layers to that. <laughs> yes. Oh, do you want to talk to that for a moment about hmm, things like how trauma can have us hold on to the past or how we can subconsciously hold on to the past in ways which then 
stops us from moving forward or appreciating or really seeing the story for or the experience for what it is. Do you have some thoughts around that that you'd love to share? Yeah, I do. I think with the idea of trauma, and you bring it up and it makes so much sense, Linda, Mm -hmm. is when you hold on to things and you don't let them go, it does sometimes hinder the experience that you're having in the present moment. And that's what happened to me for a long time. I was abused by a caretaker at a very young age. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I didn't add an activation warning, but I was sexually abused by a caretaker at a very young age. Mm -hmm. No one related to my family. And I held on to that trauma for, let's see, it happened when I was ages four to six. And I finally released it around age 44, 43. So if you think about that 40 years of holding on to that trauma, And when I finally was able to release it with a trauma energy healer who was also a psychologist, it was the biggest weight off my shoulders because when I was going through this and holding on to it, it really hindered my life. And I didn't realize until I was finally able to let go because a lot of the decisions I made were subconsciously based on the trauma. You know, if, if I was in a relationship and someone got too close, for example, I had talked extensively on my podcast with a psychotherapist who said children who have been sexually abused a lot of times as they become adults, they have trouble accessing success. And that could be success any way you look at it. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, mm-hmm. family success or personal success or business success. And for me, it was definitely career business success that I was always hindered on. I could never find the right career. I was always, you know, trying to find the right thing. And and I finally feel like I have. And I think a lot of that is because I released that trauma and I, I received that clarity. And the interesting part of what the psychotherapist told me is when you don't release this trauma with survivors of childhood sexual abuse, a lot of times they're trying to repeat the pattern to figure it mm-hmm. out. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the pattern sexually. It, it can be the pattern, for example, in business. They're just, they're trying to, they just keep failing because they're trying to figure something out. And it's very strange and odd, but you know, that's an example of it. So Yeah, I totally believe that when you hold on to something too long, it just, you know, it's like a, um, it's like lobsters in a pot or like a lobster pot where you hear the steam just going and going and then it finally blows. And then for me, because I held on to this trauma for so long, it stayed physically in my DNA and my cells. So I started to have problems with inflammatory bowel disease and I have an inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, called ulcerative colitis or UC, or I, down there you may call it, uh, that's my Jersey accent, down there you may call it <laughs> ulcerative colitis. So I have an issue with that and I had a life-threatening flare a year ago almost exactly. So, you know, I uh, that's what happens when you hold on to things. And, and I agree mm. with you on that. Mm. And one other thing I do remember from that conversation that you had as well is the concept or very much belief when you have experienced uh, traumatic events in whatever capacity and the belief that success is an end. So, when we become successful yes. at something, it's an ending, which then starts to impede on our safety <laughs> and start to become a little bit of a threat in a way. And gosh, that made so much sense to me because for years I've tried to endeavor <laughs> many, many projects such as writing a book or podcasts or it's almost a family heirloom in our house or in our family growing up that we joke about how many unfinished projects we all have and it's almost like a competition <laughs> <laughs> between like it's it's like a badge of honor that we used to, well, we still do have that 
um, and I didn't really realize the underlying layers of that. <laughs> but I love that in a way because you come from a creative family and you understand mm. each other. That's mm -hmm. something that it, I I'm jealous of, I have to admit, because my family, they're all very high achievers in career and they're the people that have stayed with their careers for, you know, 35, 40 years, gotten their gold star. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So we like have, with we me, have too. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> with me, I'm, I'm the black sheep. They don't understand me. They're like, what is it today? Starting another podcast, starting another, you know what I mean? They don't get it. So mm. that's all right. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so interesting. And I also remember as well that trauma, especially when you are a child with an underdeveloped or unable to really grasp a fully fully grown, I guess, concept of many things, you can stub your toe or be involved in a very uh, huge car accident, let's say. Unfortunately, a lot of the times the body will know no different between the stub toe and the car accident at the same time. It's all trauma, mm. <laughs> no matter which way. And I think about oh, just going into my experience with that and when I started talking about my own experience of trauma and trying to unpack, well, what does that look like? So unfortunately my mum lost my brother to what they put down to SIDS when I was five months in utero. <laughs> mm. So essentially the grief was huge and I picked up on that undoubtedly, un <laughs> unavoidably and in – trying to understand and not blame and not dive too deeply but also realise it has had an impact on my life. And so that's been interesting to start to talk about because for so, so, so many years I didn't want to feel like I was blaming anybody. So therefore it shouldn't be an issue, I shouldn't, be hindering my own capacity or capability or success or so many other different things and yeah <laughs> it's been really interesting to navigate that if you like yeah it permeated through you your mm -hmm. your mother's sadness and grief permeated through you i absolutely believe that i was um i was adopted and right. my birth mother when she gave me up i'm sure that sadness and trauma for whatever reason she gave me up. I'm sure that permeated through me as well. So I understand where you're coming from. Mm. Was your brother adopted as well? He was, but we are not from the same even area, family, anything like that. Mm. Mm. And how was that in, did you always know that you were adopted? Always knew ever since I could understand and speak. My parents were very honest with me. They couldn't keep it a secret because everyone knew they went down to Columbia <laughs> and did it. <laughs> yeah. So there was no secret. I had lost my older brother, their son, I'm going to say maybe a year before they adopted me. So my my older brother, my adopted older older brother knew him, but I never knew him. So because of the loss of that child, they had mm. to adopt. So it was oh. nothing could have been kept a secret, you know, like right. <laughs> it would have been hard to keep a secret. And my yeah. mom has blonde hair and blue eyes and she's Polish and Lithuanian. And I am, think about it. I mean, no, I'm half <laughs> Colombian. And then from a, from a, um, what do you call those tests? You know, those, tests you can take to find your ancestry. Mm. My birth father was Middle Eastern. So I'm half Middle Eastern, half Colombian. So I look nothing like my mom. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You start to ask questions and all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. How I'm, oh, it's interesting because I've also had some other guests who have children uh, who they adopted 
in the 60s, 60s. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Small so, children, babies? Babies. Wow. And they had four biological children as well. So wow. it's a fascinating subject because I can't fully wrap my head around it, but then at other times I've wondered how that works as far as identity and do you get to a stage where you want to know more or just the intrigue behind that? How did that play out in your life? I think like most adopted children, especially if you're an international adoption like mm. I was, you do have a lot of questions of where I came from because you, if you think about it, that makes sense because, okay, if you're an American adoption, of course there's that, where did I come from? But you're also identifying with the culture. You know, you're born mm. into this culture, you live in this culture, you know this culture versus being from Colombia, right? I don't really have any attachment to that culture. So there's a lot of questions behind that. And my parents are white Americans who don't speak Spanish or have any connection to the culture. So, you know, it's not like I can go to them and ask them. It was funny, I had met someone the other day who has pretty much the same adoption story as me, except the parents really infused uh, her indigenous roots in her and made sure she grew up with that and exposed her to her Hispanic culture. And they spoke oh. Spanish and everything, which is beautiful. I grew up in the 1980s in suburban New Jersey, where if you were different, that was bad. So my parents just wanted me to assimilate as much as possible because I look so different from the other kids. You know, the other kids look like the typical American, the brown hair, the brown or blue eyes, you know, that kind of thing. And so I didn't look like that at all. And they just wanted me to assimilate in that way, which I, I understand, you know, it was a time period. I definitely get that. So when you are an adopted child, I think everyone goes through a phase and I'm going to guess here probably my phase was probably from like, let's say nine, 10 to 12 years old of mm. where did I come from? And my parents weren't b big into answering any of my questions. So that was really tough. Uh, so, you know, basically I, I had watched this documentary on this woman who was, she was adopted and she was the birth daughter of an American soldier who fought in Vietnam. So she went to find her Vietnamese birth mother. Mm. And by the way, before I say this, like I'm friends with Vietnamese people, love them whole thing. So this is yeah. not a comment on the culture. This is just a comment on the family. That's mm -hmm. all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, she went to Vietnam and met the family, her birth mother and her siblings. And all they wanted was money from her. They saw her as a rich American, and she was absolutely devastated. I remember this called Daughter of Denying. It's yeah, crushing. It was on PBS here. And after I saw that, that was a wake up call. And I was like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I don't want to be exposed to yeah. anything like that. Um, again, all love to Colombia. It's it's a thriving, wonderful, beautiful country and culture. But I don't know where my birth mother comes from in a financial way. And if I were to, mm. uh, let's say, introduce myself and she saw me incorrectly as a rich American, which I'm not at all, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know. So, so that really stuck with me and that stopped the curiosity. <laughs> I have to say that that really stopped the curiosity. And then mm -hmm. as you grow up, you realize that, you know, you're told these stories in movies if you're adopted. Oh, you know, you were given away by a by a prince and a princess of a kingdom oh, yeah. that, mm -hmm. and then you realize no, like that your birth parents, with all due respect, and it's not always true, but for the most part, they gave you up because they had a lot of problems, yeah. and they couldn't keep you. And whatever those problems were, there's no judgment behind it. And I love my birth mother. But there were problems because she also gave up a sister two years later. So obviously, if you're giving up two children in two years, no judgment, but there, your life is not going perfectly. I think mm. we can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of stopped answering the questions for me. And I've known, Linda, I knew someone I grew up with who was adopted who just never 
fit in. I mean, we're talking never fit in with her Mm. adopted family ever. I remember talking to her in fourth grade and it was just so sad. She's from South Korea, just never fit in. And later on, I had found out in life actually not long ago that she moved to a different city and she found her birth mother and her her birth siblings and she basically moved to be closer to them and she fits in well with them and she br- pretty much has no connection now to her adoptive parents and the adoptive parents are crushed because they raised her and paid for her school and did you know so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. adoption's very complicated oh very 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 complicated <laughs> absolutely and look it's such a individual case by case scenario like you were talking about the situation just before of how you've got some situations where they really encourage and embed the culture of your um, origins, if you like, and speak Spanish or all those sort of things. However, for your parents, from what the, the small bits that I've heard, they were in survival mode because yeah. they were just – coping in a way in yeah in the fact that they grew up in the depression and they you know they were just getting by in many ways even though had all the academia and high achieving and everything they were still on survival mode (laughs) and I think you begin to appreciate your own upbringing as you age as well and the experiences you were given and so many other factors that it's a it's a real individual experience i think it mm. is and if anyone wants to learn more about adoption you're you want to look into adopting you are adopted there's an incredible book called the primal wound mm. by nancy verrier It's V-E-R-R-I-E-R. And she is known, at least in the U.S., as the adoption expert. And she explains adoption in such a beautiful way. And she adopted a daughter. And she really gets into the heart of what an adoptee, someone like me, is feeling. And I think it really helps if you're looking into adoption especially so you can understand what you're getting into. I think a lot of people, they have this romantic vision of adoption, you know, Linda, because Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt adopted all these kids. So it's going to work out for me, you know, but they also have a lot of problems with all due respect. So (laughs) a lot of of help, a lot of help. I was going to say that too. Yeah. And there's also a lot of nannies and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So you know, you really want to know what you're getting into. And it's a beautiful thing. And I encourage everyone to adopt if you want to, that I'm not saying anything negative, but you need to know what you're going into. And especially in that case of if you have biological children and you're bringing an adopted child, possibly with some problems into the family, you you just have to look at what you're doing. You just know what you're getting into. That's Mm -hmm. all. The people I find that they know what they're getting into do very well with adoption, especially if you're adopting from, well, Americans no longer can adopt from Russia, but when we could, a lot of times these Russian children came over here with special needs because they had fetal alcohol syndrome and all Mm. sorts of things. But the parents that understood that and knew that they were going to be with a special needs child for life, they fared much better. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I remember... Growing up, having heard about someone who just found out they were adopted maybe in their late 30s or 40s, and that's a whole new (laughs) – Yep. That's, again, I I just thought that was almost mystical and intriguing. Like it it created a lot of intrigue for me because I'm like, wow, how how do you not know or how do you – it was just quite – I remember thinking about it quite a lot actually at uh, probably would have been 13 or 14 or something. So didn't even have a very good understanding at the time. (laughs) And now we have 23andMe or I don't know what you have over there, but we have these these ancestral 
testing kits where, mm-hmm. and if you're put in that system, let's say if you are a male who didn't know you fathered this child and you're put in that system because you've done the test and then your child you don't know about has done the test, they can find you. Mm. I don't know if you know that, but a lot of a lot mm. of people through this 23andMe or whatever it is have found out that their fathers especially are not their fathers. So that's been a big thing that's been going on in the U.S. that that they've gone to. The, I've heard so many stories on podcasts where they've gone to the mother and been like, listen, you got to tell me the truth because biology doesn't lie and DNA doesn't lie. So what went on? And that has to be tragic as well, you know. Oh, all rounds, not only for the uh, not only for the family, but the ripple effects out into yeah. strangers, essentially, and those around you, friends, and <laughs> there's so many. Oh, goodness, <laughs> and be honest, people. Just be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And look, it's also a big part of that dramatic type uh, of scenarios or situations that we often like to create both in our head or in our misunderstanding of situations such as adoption or, you know, that drama that so many of us are (laughs) drawn to for many, many different reasons. (laughs) Just circling back to the trauma and the holding on to safety and all sorts of, oh, Again, <laughs> there's lots of different layers, isn't there? Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Indeed. <laughs> um, now, I also wanted to touch a little bit, if we can just swing backwards for a second, on your experience in the Peace Corps. Do you want to tell me a little bit? Wow, you that? dug deep. Oh, <laughs> no, not really, actually. <laughs> I'm teasing. I was listening to a bit of your podcast today with my seven-year-old. He said, "Oh, this one's actually quite interesting because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it'd be more about you know some of the more boring topics." He's like, "Yeah, I like this one. I like it." Oh well, that makes me happy that I made your seven-year-old happy. Oh my oh, gosh! I'll get That's... him to leave you a review. <laughs> <laughs> please, please. Oh my gosh. That makes me, that just brings a smile to my face. Yeah. So I did the Peace Corps, which is an American governmental service organization, and they go into second world and third world countries where you volunteer for two years and you help out in certain ways. Now, everyone knows the typical example of going Mm. to Africa and building (laughs) schools and building, right? Like that's what everyone knows and doing medicine. I was in a country called Estonia, and Estonia is in Mm. Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. It is to the west of Russia, and it is right below Finland if you look on a map. And everyone knows the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. So I was in Estonia. I was about 20 kilometers from the Latvian border, so I went to Latvia a lot, and I went to Lithuania a lot. So I was lucky enough to do that. And I spent a lot of time, even though I technically was not supposed to, in Scandinavia. (laughs) I did that a lot as well. Yeah, my partner spent a lot of his youth in Finland in school growing up. So yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. That's cool. So yeah, I spent two years there in the Peace Corps in Estonia teaching English as a second language. And it was an extraordinary experience. It it really was. It's such Mm. a beautiful country. I always tell people, if you have a chance, go to the Baltics. They're beautiful. Estonia, the country, has such an incredible landscape that people are shocked by it. Have you Mm -hmm. been there, Linda, or seen pictures? Well, we've just finished traveling across Europe with the boys. Wow. So we went to Belgium mainly because that's where we have family. And then we went across to Poland, Czech, Germany and up and around. And, yeah, same sort of thing. We were so surprised by some of the landscape. (laughs) I don't – yeah, it's really hard to, I guess – envision like just have that idea in your mind but yeah Poland just blew us away we loved Poland (laughs) really surprised by the landscape in Czech 
same sort of thing. Yep. Loved it. So I can relate not so much to Estonia exactly, but yeah. <laughs> well, to any travelers out there, Tallinn is a capital of Estonia. And if you ever go, mm. it's a medieval fortress city and they yeah. kept it well preserved <laughs> and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think you guys know this, but go during the warm months. <laughs> don't go, don't go in winter because it's not going to be fun for you, but yep. uh, go during the warmer months. I always also say that my top three countries that I've traveled to, one of them is Lithuania. Yep. You will be shocked by Lithuania. People are shocked by it. It has the most gorgeous towns. They are well-preserved with that, again, medieval architecture. And then on top of it, it has this beautiful beach area. And then on top of that, they have sand dunes and the forests. It's just, it is a really magical country. I mean, so is Estonia in a different way, but I was, I've been very blown away by Lithuania every time I've gone there. Very blown away. Yeah. And it's hard to exactly describe because we had lots and lots of surprises along the way, like challenging and just blew us away where we were visiting some of that more medieval history, which we just don't really have a lot of in Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the kids were just lapping it up and oh. just so, so wonderful. So, yeah. So were you in a fairly small school? Yeah, so I was in an extremely small school in mm. a small Estonian village in Estonia. So they speak Estonian, which is similar to Finnish. So back in the day, not anymore, but back in the day, I could understand a little bit of Finnish because I could understand some Estonian. And I'm not someone who's a linguist. Estonian is one of the mm -hmm. hardest languages in the world. And I think when I was tested, I was at, by the end of maybe the first year, I was at like a intermediate high level. So that's probably as much as I exceeded to. But I realized I was understanding things because I would be on a bus and I'd listen into, not intentionally, but listen into mm -hmm. conversations and I could pick yep. up the gist, you know, but yep. if you want to talk to me about news and politics, no, I couldn't have done no. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but, the, but the main part of Estonia, they speak Estonian, but on the east, that is the Russian part of Estonia. So they speak Russian and even the street signs are in Russian. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to the Russian areas as well. Mm -hmm. So I was able to speak a little bit of Russian, but not again, not anymore. It's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> it's all gone okay. by the wayside, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, so I taught English as a second language there. And it was really interesting because I had to get these kids prepped for a test at the end of the year and they had to do really well on this test. So I was responsible for the speaking and writing portion. My colleague was responsible for the grammar, which I was so happy because I didn't want to teach grammar, but she loved doing it. So I was responsible for the speaking and writing, which makes sense because you have an American there. So mm. of course you want to speak with me, right? <laughs> so um, it was really funny because they are brought up in the Soviet system of learning, which means everything is memorized. And when they do, for example, a scientific experiment, and please keep in mind, this was 20 years ago, it could have changed. It's a small village in Estonia, probably very different in Tallinn. But when you have, for example, a, a chemistry experiment, right, you actually do it, at least in American classrooms, you know, you set up the beakers and you, you pour the liquid into the other liquid, the acid into this, and you <laughs> do the experiment. But mm. there they just read about it. Oh. So, oh. It, yeah, so they were fascinated. They asked me questions about like, have you ever dissected a frog. And I was like, yeah. I guess they show it a lot on TV. So, mm. you know, when these kids watch American TV and I was like, yeah. And, and they explained to me that, no, that's not, you know, that's not what they did there. So I had to, my challenge was expanding their mind to think outside of the box because Soviet learning, and by the way, some of the best scientists and mathematicians 
mm. of our time mm-hmm. come from that Soviet system. So I'm not knocking it, but it's just a different system than we're used to. Yeah. So I had to help them think outside the box, especially with essays and all sorts of things. And so that was my challenge. And I learned from that experience, Linda, that I'm a bit of a dictator. Like if you give me power... <laughs> I have no problem (laughs) being that militant. I was just, I would not stop until these kids got it right. Like they would stand up and, you know, uh, because they had a speaking portion of the test and I would be like, you got to stand up straight. You (laughs) go over that again, say that again. You said it wrong. We're going to keep doing it until you get it right. But it paid off because on test day, they had seen the highest scores they'd ever seen in the school. So the militant thing actually worked. (laughs) But yeah, that was my challenge was getting them to think Mm. in different ways. And they did a great job. I I should say that as well. In the Estonian culture, uh, the golden rule is silence is golden. So it's a very quiet culture, at least here in the U.S. I didn't find it as much in Australia, but in the U.S., like, you always have to fill a silent gap. Like you always have, mm-hmm. it's like silence mm-hmm. is the opposite and it's annoying. Like it's, it's honestly annoying, but they're really good at just, they say what they say and then they're quiet. And I kind of mm. appreciated that. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. I found that with a lot of the people actually that I met and ran into across Europe as well. And maybe that's part of the reason why I really enjoyed the Polish and yeah. Poland community, there, there's a lot of reasons. And just when you were talking about the the Russian exposure, if you like, we were on, I think, a three, three-and-a-half-hour train from Germany across to Poznan. And mm. the train was pretty full, so we got separated a little bit. And I found myself in a carriage with a lady who was taking her two- and three-year-old back to Ukraine and we started striking up a conversation and just some bits were a bit lost <laughs> in <laughs> translation, but I just found yeah. it so fascinating and so she was so welcoming and lovely and mm. the kids were interacting with my kids as well. So my kids being one, seven and 10 so a little bit older and then towards the end of that trip we were actually sitting around watching Russian cartoons they had no (laughs) idea what was going on no idea what was being said but the whole experience of that train journey was so very powerful because even though there wasn't a lot of language the same I could still pick up most of it and she would share some of her experiences and all the children were sitting around eating together and watching together and just interacting in little ways together and it was just yeah one of my favorite memories <laughs> among many there were there were that's lots that's beautiful can i just mm. say that's such a beautiful wow that's such a beautiful experience for your children and i have to say linda i am completely and 100% impressed that you brought a one-year, say to get one-year-old, seven-year-old, and 10-year-old across Europe. Yeah, yeah, all boys. That is all <laughs> boys. That mm. is so brave and amazing. Good for mm. you. Mm. Yeah, it was such an insight into them and to me and to us as yeah. a family unit. And <laughs> we had because five different people, five different energy levels, five different interests, <laughs> there were certainly times where we were like, why did we do this? Oh. <laughs> and then other times where it was absolutely amazing and we'll be talking about it for years, years to come. Ugh, that is that is so invaluable, giving your children travel. Um, my parents, they gave us a lot, so I'm not knocking it, but they were not travelers. So having the experience of not having travel and my husband, he grew up on ranches out in Wyoming and Colorado and he didn't grow up with any money. And so they didn't have money to, you know, even travel if they wanted to. So it's funny because 
when we became adults, my husband is a pilot that flies all around the world ah. all the time. And then I'm someone that when I could first study abroad and then within 10 days of graduating, moved to Estonia, you know, it's, it has an influence on you. So I love mm. that you brought that beautiful experience already to your children. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So the 10 year old's already talking about living in Singapore for a little while. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> based on based on a lot of his experience in the Singapore airport, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, oh goodness, I have loved this conversation so very much. I'm yes, utterly pleasantly surprised and grateful of being able to meet like this for this conversation to start and I think there might be many to come so yeah um one question that I do like to wrap up with is your favorite Sunday roast memory <laughs> being the title of the podcast and the book and all those sort of things do you doesn't necessarily need to be the roast just memories of I guess I know you don't like cooking too much <laughs> for lots of reasons. <laughs> you got that from my podcast. I did, I did. I heard that went, oh, okay, right. Um. <laughs> Can I tell you something? I was talking, I'm going to make a confession to everyone here, all your listeners. I was, you know, I'm going through your questions this morning and uh, I say to my husband, I said, so the last thing I have to say is, this Sunday roast story. And I said, but I don't really cook. So what do I say? Do I lie? And he's like, just make something up. And I was like, I want to make something up. Like, I don't want to do that. So I, I actually do have a story and it is true. It is not made up and it's very recent. So I dug in, I dug in my mind and said, oh no, I have a story. I have a story. So I love when my brother and his family, they came over here. They've been here once because we live kind of far away and he has a bunch of kids. And But they came over here for fall or or you would say autumn. And where I live, the Hudson Valley of New York is so well known for fall. The The foliage mm -hmm. is absolutely mm -hmm. unbelievable. You're not going to see it anywhere else. For those Australians who want to come over to the US and you want to do it in fall, definitely explore the Hudson Valley. We are 90 miles above, an hour and a half above New York City. So it's very convenient as well. So um, yeah, my brother came over here and we just had a really beautiful day. I put out a pasta and I put out anti-pasta and I put out a whole vegetable spread. And then, yes, I actually did make a meatloaf. <laughs> I actually did it. I made a meatloaf because we raise Black Angus cows and we process three a year. So we have meat. So we have our fresh meat. And so I made all this and I had the spread and I put it out on the deck and our deck overlooks our pond and our pastures. And it was so beautiful just to see mm. my brother teaching his, at the time she was probably about two, three years old, my niece, how to fish. And, and we have this great picture of them fishing. It's adorable. And then my other niece was running around the pastures and trying to meet the cows, which obviously mm. that's dangerous. So we went, <laughs> we, we would only let her behind the fences. We wouldn't let mm -hmm. her in the pastures. That's obvious. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was just so nice to see everyone relaxing. And and my older nieces and nephews just were fishing and said it was really relaxing and they want to come back. So for me, that is my Sunday roast mm -hmm. story. It was just, it was something magical for me that I could provide this beautiful fall foliage home and they have the beach house. So then we go down to the beach for summer. So it's just a good oh. trade-off. Oh, such a good trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll let you in on another little secret as well. You're not the only person that has admitted that they really don't cook very much. <laughs> oh, so. oh, my God. <laughs> well, I found alone. a story. I was very proud of myself. And I just yes. want to say, Linda, I am so honored to be a part of this project, by the way, that you are successful at and I do see an ending for. Mm. So I'm just so proud to be on this. And this was an incredible conversation. I love getting to know you. So thank you so much. Thank you. To connect with an almost stranger, <laughs> it just fills my heart to discover 
how much gold there was behind the audio at the other side. I don't know if you realise, or even if I might have mentioned it, but many of these conversations were recorded with audio only. No video, no facial expressions, no body language to read, audio only. There's a bit of power in that. (laughs) It's a little unusual these days as we are exposed to hours of Zoom on some days and more. However, it just brings such a magic to these conversations. Another magical conversation that I had was with my dear friend, Melissa. Let's take a little listen to her episode, An Executive Chef and an Old Fashioned Kitchen Stool. Enjoy. Maybe that's why that particular position fed my soul in so many ways, because not only did I get a do what I loved, which is make really nice high-end food, but ultimately most chefs love to do what they do because they want to take care of people. They want to Mm, bring them together. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I still to this day find nothing more powerful than putting people around a table together and letting them just have conversation. And at the heart of things, not only was I getting to do that as a host, as a, as someone who was putting the event on and ultimately cooking for them. But then I got to do the same thing to put all of the crew together every single day for family style meals and sit down with those people who were also all away from their families and form some sort of a ragtag, you know, on the road, cohesive (laughs) family with a bunch of people that in some ways couldn't be more different. There was a lot of magic in it. There was also a lot of strife at times. So as you can imagine, you had to deal with all of the things. And most of the time, (laughs) it just seems that there's a food in front of you and you're eating a meal when a lot of this stuff, when the gold happens. To hear more about current projects and the book, head over to my website, lindabonnie.com. I wonderfully welcome you to the community. Thank you so much for joining us.